as a kid wandering around Jazz Fest, you know, and you're wandering around as a kid and you happen upon Snooks Eaglin and something clicks. Oh my gosh, that's the record my dad has. That's, that's him. And he's singing the song that's on that record that I heard on OZ, you know, that's him. Oh my gosh. Okay. You know, you're a kid, so you're not going out to clubs, you know? So Jazz Fest all of a sudden becomes the only place that you can hear these bands. Oh my God. Wait, that's, that's the band that plays Sissy Strut. That's them. Oh, I know him. Right. That. Yeah, I know him from, I think his like uncle or somebody is an Indian and like, you're like, okay, I think I know him, you know, and then you hear, you know, James Black and, you know, Ellis Marcellus and you're like, wait, I know that, I know the saxophone player, but he's like, or I know the trumpet player. That's cause his brother plays at Preservation Hall and that's James Black. Okay. Bam. Like all of this is happening. You know, and you're like these these people who you know from the grocery store and like being out at funerals and being out at second lines and being out in the neighborhoods. You see performing on a stage in front of people for the first time. You know, that's something I know from New Orleans. In New Orleans, nobody knows that like outside New Orleans, like you're like kind of famous. Welcome back to Festival Circuit New Orleans and to episode two. I'm Rob Steinberg, your narrator and guide through this musical and historical journey. The vast web of connections in New Orleans seems never ending. For this series, we talk to dozens of people and in every conversation, the interviewee would ask, so who else are you talking to? Almost everyone would refer to another interviewee as a friend, cousin, or brother. And we heard a lot of, uh, oh yeah, that's, uh, that's another one of my buddies. Now this may have been a skewed sample given that we were interviewing musicians and people who live around the music scene, but it's still a prominent theme. And the idea of family isn't just about bloodlines. It's about a broader sense of the family, the family of musicians, the family of everyone associated with the music community, and of course, the family of the city itself. New Orleans is, in many ways, one big family. A family that supports each other, takes care of each other, and looks out for one another. We'll explore the idea of family here in Episode 2. several dimensions to the idea of family in New Orleans. The first is people who are related to each other by blood or marriage, or maybe just by being around each other for long periods of time. In New Orleans, 
there are many well-known families from across multiple generations that helped to define the music of the city. We had the privilege of talking with Ivan Neville, a member of one of the most prominent families in the city. Ivan is the son of legendary singer Aaron Neville, who first topped the charts in 1966 with Tell It Like It Is. Ivan has his own band, Dumpster Funk, and has played with many other bands, including the Neville Brothers, and with Keith Richards in their band together called The Expensive Winos. Here's how Ivan summarized the overlap of family and music growing up in New Orleans. At some point, my, my great uncle, George Landry, He's more, more, more so known as Big Chief Charlie of the Wild Chapatulas, Mardi Gras Indians. And he lived next door to us at some point. My uncle Art lived down the block. My grandmother lived across the street from Art. And Cyril was always, you know, was always close by. I don't know at the time where exactly he was living. But there was a, yeah. So, and there, it, it was like within two blocks, we were all kind of together. There was a point later, later on, where Charles, Cyril, us, and my Uncle Art, we all lived within two blocks of one another. This was later on, though. It was just music was everywhere, man. And there were, there were other, there were bands that were practicing around, you know, in, in the neighborhoods, different uh, uh, musicians and whatnot. There was the, um, the, uh, the, the, the Mardi Gras Indians. You saw that stuff at an early age. And, and that stuff, man, it's just the sounds of the streets in New Orleans. It was amazing. Did you catch all that? We'll talk about the Nevilles in more depth. But, but first, let's talk about George Landry, who was the first person Ivan mentioned. The Wild Chapatulas was a group of Mardi Gras Indians formed in the early 1970s by George Landry, who's also known as Big Chief Jolly. The Mardi Gras Indians tradition deserves its own podcast, but briefly, there are dozens of tribes of people who dress up for Mardi Gras in handcrafted outfits that are inspired by Native American and other traditions. But it goes far beyond just dressing up for Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras Indian tribes used to actually do battle on the streets with rival tribes, and back in the day, it could get pretty rough. One tribe could lose a battle and then head back to their territory to dress their wounds. Nowadays, it's still fierce, but instead of knives and clubs, they battle through dance and song, marching and drumming. And it's more of a celebration. And of course, they show off all their intricate beading and feather work they do each year when they prepare their new suits. Some of the tribes appear together, playing in local clubs and festivals. And you can hear the hypnotic, repeating chants many times throughout the year, and as well as at Jazz Fest and in Second Line Parades. The Wild Chapatulas released their self-titled album in 1976, which was added to the U.S. Library of Congress's National Registry in 2012. This honor marks the album's cultural, artistic, and historic importance to our nation's aural legacy. The Meters and the Neville Brothers provided the music for the album, further entwining members of these various families. The website AllMusic notes that the album locks into an extraordinary hybrid that marries several indigenous New Orleans musics with swampy, dirty funk taking its place in the forefront. So you can see the influence that having an uncle like George Landry might have on a young Ivan Neville. In addition to the influences from his dad, Aaron, and his uncles, Art, Charles, and Cyril, all living in the same neighborhood. And this seems to be unique to New Orleans. For perspective on what it's like to see this from the outside, 
Here's Rick Farman, who co-founded Superfly Presents, which produces the Bonnaroo Festival in Tennessee and the Outside Lands Festival in San Francisco. He first came to the city to attend Tulane University and founded Superfly Presents in 1996. Music, food, art, just culture in general is not a separate part of the daily life. It is daily life. And I think that that's, um, you know, unique. Um, you know, most people view art and um, music and culture like that as sort of like a thing that you do for entertainment. The thing you do, you go to. And in New Orleans, um, it really happens first in the home. When I was living in New Orleans and um, playing as a hack musician, um, you know, I would always um, encounter, you know, neighbors and friends who were these incredible players. And when you ask them, you know, hey, how did you become such a great saxophone player or drummer or whatever it was, it was inevitably, you know, my grandfather played and then my dad played and my mom, you know, uh, does this in the church band. And, um, you know, I've been playing since I was, you know, two or three years old. And that's just what we did. And that is very different from, I think, most of America. The music scene in New Orleans has developed into what it is today in part because of the interconnected web of families. Of course, every family is different, but if you spend enough time with another family, you might bring your differences, interpretations, and even biases to a conversation or in creating music. Conversely, when you meld those things together, you also become a little more alike. And when lots of families share music and community, well, you can start to see the beginnings of this web of talented and connected individuals. Whether it's a wedding, birthday, graduation, funeral, holiday, or festival, there's always another staple that's consistent in these gatherings. Food, and so many different kinds. You can hear folks saying things like, her red beans are the most tender, or no one makes a gumbo like my grandmother. Rick mentioned it already, and it comes up time and time again in conversations about New Orleans. But for all of us, if we're lucky, we share lots of meals with our family, and maybe with other families too. In New Orleans, this is particularly poignant, as the city has some of the most unique cuisine in the world, a mix of Cajun, Creole, soul food, and seafood. You can have gumbo, jambalaya, etouffee, oyster po'boys, red beans and rice, and boudin, and that list goes on and on. Now, if you want to see the best of the best food this city has to offer, you have to seek out the Simpsons New Orleans episode from season 29, episode 17, when Homer literally eats his way through New Orleans. Cajun crawfish, lamb tagine, grilled lamb sausage, zucchini bisque, crab meat po' boy, duck po' boy, chicken sausage po' boy, crawfish sausage po' boy, couchon du lait po' boy, turkey jondiniera po' boy, roast beef po' boy, alligator po' boy, catfish almondine, crawfish almondine, crawfish etouffee, boiled crawfish, Cajun crawfish, Cajun shrimp and duck pasta, fried crab cake, pecan catfish, black and redfish, seafood 
Merliton casserole, fried chicken, fried green tomatoes. Food brings people together and looms really large in the consciousness of New Orleanians. So perhaps it's not surprising that when we talked to Ivan Neville about his earliest musical memories, it was intertwined with food. So there was there was like a, a kind of a little picnic thing going, like a, a cookout. There was somebody was grilling some chicken. They were barbecuing chicken and things of that nature. And I remember this one song that was playing. And that was that stuff. And it was, it was goddamn Smokey Robinson the Miracle. That was like something that stuck out to me, that, that thing. And obviously there were many others after that, but that, the, that, that you know, the bar sounds, hearing the sounds coming from the ballroom downstairs. I remember how that chicken tasted. That, that, this, this man that he on the grill, and that was my first time eating I think barbecued chicken off of a grill. I thought it tastes so good. But at about, I guess I was maybe four years old, and and a, a drumstick barbecue grill was oh, that was good. As we get further into the series, we'll talk about the importance of food to the jazz fest itself, which is a big part of the experience for tens of thousands of attendees each year. But you can tell from Ivan's memory that for a lot of New Orleanians, food and music go hand in hand. We'll be right back with Festival Circuit right after I grab a po' boy. Yo! Many of us, myself included, Grew up wanting to be a professional athlete or a rock star. Whether it was Dr. J or Jerry Garcia, there was always someone who was fueling my imagination about what I could be. But in New Orleans, at least for many kids, the people they wanted to be like lived right around the corner. We got some more perspective on growing up in New Orleans as part of a musical family from Glenn David Andrews, who grew up in the Treme neighborhood. For some context, Glenn David and his brother Derek Tabb are both celebrated musicians in the city. Their uncle is Jesse Hill, whose hit Oopoopadoo is a Mardi Gras Indian chant and one of the great New Orleans songs. Glenn and Derek's cousins, James Andrews and Troy Trombone Shorty Andrews, who's one of the biggest stars to come out of New Orleans in a generation. Here's what Glenn David said about growing up in the city. Musician in my neighborhood, nobody never wanted to be a football player or a teacher or basketball. We always idolized Harold Dejon, Tuba Fat, Idris Muhammad. Like, I used to live up the street from Idris Muhammad. So for me to sit next, like, uh, my grandmother ran one of the most historical barrooms, the uh, Mamaroos Cozy Corner, one block from the Caledonia, which became Trombone Shorty. We're in between five funeral homes, 12 churches in over 13 barrooms, and everything I just related to you has music in it. Music is in death. My grandmother's barroom has music from sunup to, like, I've been watching the Dirty Dozen Brass Band since they were a brass band under one light in my grandmother's barroom that she ran extension course from her house to put the lights in her ball. Big Al Carson singing in the ball, sitting on the porch with tuba fat. For me to grow up in Tremé is like growing up, it's like a kid growing up in Disney World. Many of these families that are responsible for the evolution of music in New Orleans lived in the same neighborhood. In episode one, we talked about the Treme and Congo Square and the relationship of those places to the evolution of music in New Orleans. 
As with so many parts of the history, the Treme is intertwined with the institution of slavery. Treme's history was detailed in the Times-Picayune's 300 for 300 project, which celebrated the tricentennial of New Orleans in 2018 with the moments and people that connect and inspire us. And here's part of what they wrote. For much of the 18th century, the land just outside New Orleans city limits, that is the land outside the area we call the French Quarter, was occupied by the Moran Plantation and Brickyard, much of which was later acquired by hat maker and real estate developer Claude Treme. Shortly after Treme acquired it, the Spanish government in 1794 dug the Claiborne Canal from the fledgling city to Bayou St. John, splitting the tract and making it more accessible while opening it up for development. According to the data center, Treme had sold off most of his land by 1810, and by 1812, it had been subdivided for development of the neighborhood that today bears his name. Congo Square is an important part of the Treme for many reasons. We mentioned that it was a place to gather, drum, and dance on Sundays, but it was also a place for slaves to sell crafts and goods, sometimes enabling them to purchase their freedom. And the music was there all along, with brass bands and symphonic orchestras. But even now, the memory of how his family ended up in the Treme is never far from Glenn David Andrews' mind. My grandmother and I was very a part of the civil rights and everything, and, and also it was very uh, Creole lifestyle. Everything about me is New Orleans is, is embedded in me from the moment my family was so in front Jackson Square bought by John, John bought from John McDonald to John Claude Tremé. So for us, we know who we are, where we are, and I also understand the historical significance of why it's important to understand Tremé from the age of four or five. I always knew why it was important to carry on and preserve and promote the tradition of the brass band and the music. Well, as they say, you have to know where you're from to know where you're going. And this family connection and family experience is ingrained in history for many people from New Orleans. These families of the city who we've talked about have centuries of pain and suffering, but also a lot of joy and celebration as well. And this is all baked into what makes New Orleans music unique. Of course, lots of musicians come to the city, like tourists seeking out everything New Orleans has to offer. Many people we talked to brought up their first impressions of the city, and we heard a lot about a feeling of authenticity here. And that's something we hope we get from wherever we are, but especially from our family, right? Honest, welcoming, authentic. We're going back to Papa Molly, who we heard from in episode one. He grew up in Shreveport, Louisiana, which is almost as far away from New Orleans as you can get while still being in the same state. He spent most of his career in New Orleans and talked to us about what he sees as unique about the culture in the city. People say, oh yeah, the big easy or whatever, but like like a friend of mine always says, it's not that big and it's sure as hell ain't easy. <laughs> but it's a, it is it is a it is wonderful and it's like all the things that you have to deal with um, are worth it because there's so much other great stuff going on here. It's a culture. It's culture. It's a cultural thing. It's a deep culture that you don't have to be fronting, you know. It's like it's authentic. It is authentic where they're used, whether you discover that or not. It really is. Andrews Osborne had a similar experience when he moved to New Orleans more than 30 years ago. Then he became part of the broader New Orleans music family as well. It was 
very casual. It was in the moment, not very showy. It was energetic, involving. It would straddle tourism, like have a touristy feel, like a, a entertainment part of it that was pretty strong, with a need to communicate and make connections. Yeah, which is, I think, different from most places I've seen. Uh, in my travels, um, you know, there are some areas where people perform the same way or write the same way. But here, it remains to this day, I think, one of maybe just a handful of places in the world where it's not consistently about making a career out of it in the sense of being famous, showing off. You're actually playing because it's necessary to play. It's part of the culture. This sense of an insular, protective, cohesive family is also balanced with a welcoming nature. Here's Irma Thomas again. And you'll find that you'll find a little bit of everything, you name it, and you can find it culturally here in the city of New Orleans. But the way we handle it is that we're very open when you come to New Orleans and very hospitable. We'll, we'll offer you some food and drink and may not even know who you are. You ask for directions and rather than just give you directions, if we have a moment, we'll literally take you where it is you want to go. So that's a uniqueness of this city that makes us different in that we have all these various, even when you, when, as a musician, you'll find that some musicians come from east and west to get our drummers because our drummers have a very unique, innate way of adding an extra beat to the music that most drummers who are not from this area, who were not raised in this area, can't do it. They just don't feel it because they didn't grow up listening to it and practicing it. And there's that rhythm again. It comes up all the time when you're talking about New Orleans. And this is what helps to define the sound. Here's Anders Osborne again talking about the sound of the music here. And as someone who tours the world constantly, he does have some perspective on it. We have our own musical style. Not a little bit. Like, you'll play some New Orleans music, and that's only happening here. That's not L.A., Minnesota music, Minneapolis music. And they'll say, Prince, no, 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 that's... I know what you're trying to say, but that's not the same. Even New York City, you can't pinpoint. You'll say, we have all music. Yes, because you have all people. It's one of the greatest cities in the world. But you don't have your own identifiable musical approach where every little bar, every note, everything about the performance of the music stems from its own self. It's really something else. And everybody does it, even rock bands. You have bands that are not from here, that move here, me being one of them, coming here as a 16-year-old, but you have people coming here for college, and then they adopt this whole thing, and then they sound the same way. You just can't get away from it. Festival Circuit will return after this break. I started my musical journey right here as well. 
as a young freshman at Tulane University in 1977. Working at the college radio station WTUL, I got indoctrinated very fast. New Orleans clearly has a unique musical identity and sound, and we can see how the musical families, nuclear, and more broadly, have also helped to define that identity and the sound over the generations. It's a city and a musical scene that attracts people from all over the world, from far away, like Anders Osborne from Sweden, or from the same state, like Papa Molly from Shreveport. In episode one, we heard from our interviewees that people started to come down to New Orleans to discover music in the 1950s. And starting around that time, the city saw an enormous influx of artists from all around the world to listen, to play, and to record. Live music is really what defines New Orleans, but there have also been many influential recording studios that have brought several huge artists to the area. They come to record albums and to try to bottle some of the magic that is New Orleans and its music. Here's Reverend Ron Klingenpeel, a retired Episcopal minister and a host on WWOZ, a listener-supported non-commercial radio station for New Orleans and the surrounding community. I mean, big names like Elvis Costello and, and uh, uh, Simon and Gar- Paul Simon and other folks who come down here to be a part, to, to record down here, I think for many of the same reasons that we attract other, there's some other things going on here that they can incorporate uh, into their own music, which makes it more interesting, fuller, and, and diverse. Uh, I don't, I don't know, Sunpipe Barnes, uh, the, uh, the Zydeco musician here in New Orleans, uh, he went on tour with Paul Simon and, and Sting twice. Uh, so they, you know, those people were incorporating somebody who was, you know, deeply ensconced in the music of, of South Louisiana in what they were doing. And, and I think that that's, that's a tribute to what we have down here is that, you know, some big name artists have come down here to get the local musicians to record with them or go on tour with them because they appreciate the, 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 the vast diversity of what we have to offer. The legendary recordings created in the city go back to the 1940s. The most storied recording studio based in the city is J&M Recording Studios, operated by Cosimo Matassa from 1945 to 1956. After dropping out of Tulane University in 1944, Cosimo opened the studio with his father's business partner, Joe Mancuso. The studio has been credited by some as the birthplace of rock and roll because of the hits recorded there, including Good Rocking Tonight by Roy Brown in 1947, The Fat Man by Fats Domino in 1949, and Tutti Frutti by Little Richard in 1955. In addition, many classic New Orleans songs were recorded here as well, such as Tipitina by Professor Longhair in 1953, and See You Later Alligator by Bobby Charles in 1955. A more recent but equally magnetic studio that brought folks to New Orleans to record was Kingsway, which was in a 12,000-square-foot private residence built in 1848 in the French Quarter. It was opened by Daniel Lenoir in 1991. Lenoir has worked as a producer on U2's albums The Joshua Tree, Octung Baby, and All That You Can't Leave Behind. He also worked in New Orleans with Bob Dylan on Oh Mercy in 1989. Once the studio opened, many huge albums were recorded there, including 
REM's Automatic for the People in 1992, Monster in 1994, Blind Melon's Soup in 1995, Emmylou Harris's Wrecking Ball, also in 1995, and Sheryl Crow's self-titled album in 1996. Also recording here were Peter Gabriel, Robbie Robertson, and Iggy Pop. The welcoming attitude extends to people who come down to play at Jazz Fest, sit in with local artists, and record albums. And like families do, the extended New Orleans musical family came together after a crisis. Katrina, as most of you know, has become a monster of a hurricane, a Category 5 storm with winds of 160, 165 miles an hour. A storm expected to make landfall around sunrise in New Orleans, a storm on track to be the biggest hurricane ever to hit the United States. I've come to appreciate differently and through different eyes the world that I grew up in. Uh, particularly after Hurricane Katrina, there was this moment, you know, it was, it was like two to six months after the storm when you felt this incredible surge of attention and appreciation from, from all from the world of music you know these musicians were speaking on behalf of the city that you grew up in and expressing all of the love and appreciation they had for new orleans you know when you hear musicians who you respect when you hear people like um dave matthews when you hear trey anastasio uh, Tom Waits, Pete Seeger, you, you, the Blind Boys of Alabama, Mavis Staples. You start hearing Mos Def. I mean, Lenny Kravitz. You, all these people who, who you either grew up with and admire, or uh, you know, came to appreciate later in life. They're they're saying how much New Orleans means to them. You know, and they're speaking from their hearts. You know, they're they're speaking from from a place deep deep in their soul where wow I would not be the musician I am today without this thing like that's how important New Orleans is you know that's how important New Orleans is and as a musician from here you never I, I never saw myself as being a part of that that rarefied world of that world of Alan Toussaint's and Dr. John's and Professor Longhairs and James Booker's and, you know, Art Neville and Cyril Neville. And like, I mean, where does it end? There's like the list never ends, you know, uh, you just see yourself hoping to 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 just end up in the same room with those people. That's all you want to do is just end up in the same room with those people, you know. That was Ben Jaffe of the Preservation Hall Jazz Band reflecting on how the musical world turned toward New Orleans in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. And of course, it wasn't just the musical world that paid attention. In the collective mind of America, in 2005 and 2006, was the pathetic response from the local and federal governments that led to the tragic humanitarian crisis that came here after the storm. People in New Orleans don't often repeat the hurricane's name. Rather than saying Hurricane Katrina, people just call it the storm. 
For musicians and families that were so used to playing together all the time, being close to each other and available to each other, people were out of sorts, to say the least. Many interviewees told us about being displaced during Katrina, uh, um, I mean the storm, and how that affected the music scene in the city. George Porter told us about what he observed with musicians he knew in the aftermath of the disaster. I mean, people got displaced all over the United States. You know, uh, um, you know, what I say is Texas doing better for those New Orleans musicians that was here that lives there now. Um, to them, some degree, they got better jobs, not necessarily as musicians, but, you know, as with the other job that they had before while they were in New Orleans and playing music, too. You know, um, the, the ones that got moved, you know, moved from New Orleans to, to states that got snow on the ground, you know. So the musical landscape and the musical family of the city were permanently changed. But there was the attention that Ben Jaffe alluded to earlier. Ivan Neville told us about his experience in those months and what he saw as the ultimate effect of the hurricane. Well, it was a little bit of good that came out of that tragedy, and it was that it was a new light that shot, that, 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 that was shining on New Orleans at, the, at that point. Because I guess people came to the realization, they said, like, oh, wow, New Orleans could, could have been gone. And so to New Orleans musicians who were exiled, who were, like, living elsewhere, we couldn't go back home for quite a while, and we were out playing, and people were really embracing New Orleans music like, like never before. In the months after the hurricane, the music scene was not cohesive. As always in New Orleans, there was music, but musicians came and went. And some came long distances, just for a gig. Here's Geraldine Wyckoff, who's written about New Orleans music for decades. She told us about what she observed in the months following the storm. Man, you know, like the Hot 8 brass band, they were driving in from Houston to do gigs. You know, and what the, like the first, second line, people were just so excited to see each other. I mean, people were crying, hugging, you know, and that kind of a thing. Um, you know, so there there was a, a more mix it up, you know. You, you had to, you know, get, get who you could to, you know. So, um, and they played like in the, at, at Snug like James Rivers, I believe, played like in the front room where the um, restaurant is, you know, and, and places that didn't have music. Slowly but surely, people, friends, and families were reunited. But the utter destruction and heartache lasted for months, years even. And the city, along with the music scene, certainly changed as a result. Here's Irma Thomas again, telling us about the changes she's seen since the storm. There are a lot of, uh, of newer, uh, younger people who are moving in uh, into, the, into the city after Katrina because properties were available. Some people who moved out after Katrina and didn't return, these properties became available. So a lot of the young people who wanted to come to the city came and are, and are still coming. And some of the, there are a lot of young people who came before Katrina who wanted to come back and live here and learn the music. So we're getting a lot of newer musicians, some of them I've never heard of before, but they're making their mark here in the city of New Orleans because they're here to learn the music and get get the feel of how it's played, but it's going to take them a while. <laughs> I can see the changes there, 
but overall, uh, you know, even with the influx of new people living here, uh, I don't think they will truly be able to ever change what New Orleans is and how New Orleans is, because we're just a city that's, that's a giving city. But what's amazing is the way Irma goes back to the giving and the welcoming nature of the city. The family welcomes everyone and welcomes everyone back. And a lot of artists really wanted to give back. There were charities formed, benefits organized, and money and well-needed attention poured into the city. Many people felt like the city might not truly heal. Would we ever see the New Orleans that we know return? Eight months after the storm, in April of 2006, on a dusty and grass-bare field at the fairgrounds racetrack, the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival returned, as did so many people who love this place. In the next episode, we'll be diving deep into the jazz festival itself, the music, history, rituals, legacy, off-site experience, the future, and more. And we'll talk about many historic performances, both before and after the storm. But one set in particular came up in almost every conversation we had. The musical family from around the world had been paying attention, and many people were wondering how Jazz Fest would come back after the storm. There was a mix of emotions in the air at that Jazz Fest. Sadness, hope, excitement, uncertainty. And there's one person who brought the crowd to its knees. Perhaps an unlikely person. Here's Keith Sparra, who we've heard from before. He writes for the New Orleans Times Picayune. Bruce Springsteen and the Seeger Sessions Band, the first jazz fest after Katrina, was far and away the most incredible experience. Not just of my jazz fest experience, but probably my concert going life. You know, it was the perfect uh, meeting of music and moment. And Springsteen got what was involved, he got what was at stake. And the set he did kind of equal parts, uh, protest song, uh, uh, kind of rallying people to rebuild. He did uh, the song My City of Runes, which was originally written about Asbury Park, New Jersey, but was totally apropos to New Orleans at the time, because literally as you were standing there in the fields, you could see roofs around the fairgrounds that still had the blue tarps on the roofs, I mean, and the city was still largely depopulated. Uh, so it was a minor miracle that the Jazz Fest happened at all that year. But then booking Springsteen for one of his first performances with that particular band uh, and having him kind of rise to the occasion and do this rallying cry, uh, it, was, you know, it was incredible. I mean, I was standing there with a group of writers. Uh, you know, all of us have been to hundreds of shows and we're all somewhat jaded. And uh, every one of us had like tears. I mean, everyone, like, you know, I still get chills remembering that show. Uh, so that was, a, you know, one of the moments where it was obvious that Jazz Fest was more than just a music festival. You know, what it represented that year uh, was maybe more intense than some other years, but overall that festival is a representation of New Orleans more so than maybe any other music festival anywhere else, because most of those other music festivals could really be anywhere. I mean, even Austin City Limits, you know, it has Austin in the name. Technically, you pick that thing up and move it somewhere else. New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival is New Orleans, and it has to be here because some of, so much of it is tied to the local music and culture. I was there that day, in the crowd, huddled with friends who'd been coming to the Jazz Fest for nearly 30 years. It was hot and humid, dusty, and Bruce's voice sounded as young and powerful as it did in the 1970s. He was moved, and he moved us. 
all of us were cheering as sweat mixed with tears rolled down our cheeks. I still get choked up when I recall that time in the city's history, and especially that concert. After that show, New Orleans would come back. We all knew it would. We all knew it that day. And it will remain in my heart for the rest of my life. Festival Circuit is presented by Osiris Media. This series is narrated and produced by me, Rob Steinberg. Executive producers are Christina Collins, Andrew Goodwin, and RJB, who also double duties as series writer and creator. Produced, edited, and mixed by Matt Dwyer. Show logo by Liz B. Thanks to all interviewees and to WWOZ. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>